It's worth knowing what's really going on. This is the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. This is Access Atlanta, your weekly look at what's fun, entertaining, and educational in and around Atlanta. I'm your host, Shane Harrison. Though some events have been postponed in recent weeks, others are going forward on their originally scheduled dates. Reba McIntyre played Gas South Arena last weekend in Duluth, while the Christian Music Tour Winter Jam postponed its scheduled stop at State Farm Arena, not because of COVID concerns, but because of the weather. If you have plans to attend any event or performance in January, it's a good idea to check the venues for the latest info. And the AJC will continue to bring you news of cancellations and postponements, so check AJC.com and AccessAtlanta.com too. And speaking of Gas South Arena, the venue formerly known as Gwinnett Arena will be hosting the Professional Bull Riders Unleash the Beast Tour Gwinnett Invitational this weekend. The top 35 bull riders in the world will compete in the event which is packed with pyrotechnics, explosions, flames, and lots of bucking bulls. It starts at 6.45 p.m. January 22nd and 1.45 p.m. January 23rd. Tickets are $26 to $379, and they're available at GasSouthDistrict.com. Check Friday's Go Guide for more events in and around Atlanta. Stay tuned for more events later in the podcast, and after the featured conversation, we'll take a look at what the AJC is bringing you this week, both online and in print. But first, we'll hear from our dining team. Our food and dining editor, Lagaya Figueres, recently spoke with fellow dining critic, Wendell Brock, and Southern food writer Hannah Raskin about the Atlanta dining scene amid the new uptick in coronavirus cases. Among other things, they discussed Raskin's recent report about COVID-19 cases among Georgia food service workers and other issues affecting local restaurants. Lagaya is here to introduce that conversation. Welcome, Lagaya. Hi, Shane. How are you? I'm good. Um, so yeah, the, I saw this report from Hannah, which is is very troubling. Um, it's uh, kind of scary out there for food service workers. It is. It's a really hard time. Um, Hannah does her work, um, her food coverages throughout the South, but she was able to get specific data about um, the COVID-19 related deaths for um, Georgia food service workers. And so um, we go into a little bit of detail there on that recent report that just came out. Right. And um, you talk, did you talk a little bit about uh, the changes that have happened and, um, you know, the... Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, so I, this is essentially, you know, two, two um, 
uh, segments here. Wendell and I spoke specifically about um, the impact of the pandemic on the restaurant industry lately, um, because we've certainly seen um, our coverage has again had to change. And um, what were our observations, what we're noticing right now locally in Metro Atlanta. And then um, Hannah's work. So if we're Hannah's coverage um, obviously, these, so these were deaths. So we, she, there's a specific time frame that she was looking at, and um, and that that gives a more clear snapshot about COVID-related deaths um, within the the Georgia food service industry. Mm-hmm. Right, and I mean they've had to they've had to adapt several times. It, it seems like you know things start to look better, and then suddenly there's an uptick, and it's like they have to go back to you know, the way things were, you know, how are they weathering this thing? Yeah. I mean, Omicron really threw a dent in it. If you remember in, um, in sort of late December, actually it was the, um, essentially biggest weekend for restaurant operators go in the holiday period, just before Christmas. And that weekend, numerous, um, local residents or local, um, uh, restaurants ended up shutting down just because, you know, of, of the, the number of cases that they had um, among their staff or simply, you know, their protocol. It was just it wasn't it wasn't safe. Right. So um, and, and obviously there's staffing shortages as well. If you, if you have too many people who are out, um, you just can't can't run your business. So that really impacted um, operators, and I'm sure that they're going to see their year-end numbers where, you know, they know that they weren't what they um, would have liked them to be. And in fact, so uh, there were two weekends where it was um, related to um, Omicron rise, and then also some of the weather didn't help one of those weekends either. So right. you had a lot of that kind of stuff. So yeah, I mean, it's tricky to stay afloat financially, but certainly health is at the um, tops of, of their considerations as they're trying to keep their businesses open. Right. And, you know, I hope that, that there will be signs of hope in the, uh, the restaurant industry soon that, you know, maybe we'll all be able to go and dine out again soon. I know that's for sure. Well, you know, we have resorted, we, we, we've, we've gone back to, to our takeout column at land orders in, and it, certainly there's a sect of the population that is still eating out. Um, you know, they're dining in, um, but just for our safety and, um, where we feel that, that safety is right now, um, we're going to, we're going to stick for, for a little bit uh, until we see a little bit, you know, some of these cases, um, fall back a bit. And, um, hopefully we're getting to the other side of this on the crown surge where we can, um, you know, feel a little bit more, um, uh, optimistic. And, um, you know, the, uh, what we do know is that folks who get, vaccinated and boosted and keep your masks on, um, the likelihood of serious, um, um, injury from that you would land in the hospital or does, you know, it's much, much lower. So, um, those are all good, good, good things. And yeah. And, you know, as I mentioned with, with Wendell, there's still restaurants, still new restaurants that are opening. There is a scene happening despite this um, pandemic that just doesn't want to go away. Yeah. Well, I, here's to dining out again very soon. I can't wait. I, I've missed it so very much. Right. Um, yeah. Well, you know, you and me both. And I think um, it, it's good for us to be mindful that if we love it so much, we all need to do our part um, so that um, these restaurants that we love can, um, can get back on their feet. Yeah. 
Well, great. Well, let's uh, go to your conversation with uh, Wendell and with Hannah Raskin. Uh, thanks so much, Lagaya. Thank you. Just a few weeks ago on this very podcast, we were celebrating the return of restaurant reviews. Since then, we've had more disruption in the industry. I'm joined now by my fellow dining critic, Wendell Brock, to discuss the state of the Atlanta dining scene. Wendell, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. You sound sound so serious today. (laughs) You know, I would give nothing more than to go sit in a restaurant right now or head over to a bar and, and, and hang out for a few hours. But um, that's not where we are at the moment. That's right. Um, Unfortunately, I guess it is a little, things have changed so much since we last talked and it, it seems like it was, you know, weeks ago. Time has really been affected by all this, I think. It it, it really has. I mean, you and I had gotten um, through just a few restaurant reviews when all of a sudden Omnicron came to town and um, you were in the middle of a review. I think I know I was in the middle of one and we had to yank them. Yeah, I was working on a review on over the weekend and that same weekend, the place I was writing about closed down because they had a team member test positive, and so they closed the restaurant down. So, like, not not that it was any terrible inconvenience to me, but um, <laughs> you know, you're working on a review. One minute, the next minute, you realize you have to you have to switch gears and figure out what's going on. So, right. Ultimately, well, I mean, we sort of lurched through that week, and then we decided toward the end of the week that we needed to suspend reviews. Cause once that started happening, we just saw more and more and more restaurants closing all the, all the good restaurants that we have written about were, you know, were um, having to shut down. Right. Yep. Restaurants so. of every size were shutting down. And ultimately we ended up doing um, an A1 story that I wrote with um, Yeah. My colleague, Yvonne Zussel, in dining, um, that uh, it was the December 20th story. And right before that uh, that weekend, um, again, like you mentioned, we saw nearly at least two dozen Metro Atlanta restaurants that temporarily closed because of um, positive cases among their staff. And I think the headline really just tells all terrible timing, COVID surge forces restaurants to close temporarily. And it was terrible timing. And I think this is where we really get into some of the seriousness of this is the economic impact of having to close during the holidays um, was really, it really took a toll on these guys who they depend on um, the, you know, the holiday traffic to really get them through, not just, you know, that, that make up for stuff the end of year, but also to get through the lean months of, of wintertime. I know that the folks at Ticonderoga Club, when I spoke with Paul Calvert, he estimated that um, because of the different closures that they had to have in December, that they lost $30,000 in gross revenue. You know, that is not chump change. So, no. yeah, yeah, that's terrible. Um, I do feel like if we had had this conversation three weeks ago, though, it would have been a different kind of conversation, a lot more bleak. It does, it does seem like the restaurants are trying to operate as usual. Um, 
the restaurants that closed immediately reopened when their staffs tested negative, I think. And is that what you're seeing, Lagaya? I feel like people are trying to. Yeah, people are trying. Maintain. They are trying to maintain. I mean, it's it's just so tricky, right? It's kind of like um, it, the the whole stop and go kind of thing, too, where they're trying to figure out testing, for example, for their employees so that they can, you know, keep, um, stay open, um, but do so safely. There's just, there's a lot of safeguards that they're trying to put in place. And um, at the same time, you know, there is certainly a sect of the population that wants to go out and eat. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think they are. <laughs> right. You, know, you, you, you and I had spoken a little bit before this, um, but do you want to talk a little bit about uh, some of what you observed or, or spoken with in terms of operators and the type of traffic that they are experiencing right now? Well, I don't think we've mentioned, I don't think we've, we've said yet that we, when we suspended dining reviews, we restarted our takeout column, Atlanta Orders In. That's and right. so for the last week or so, except for a little bit of entertaining, I've, I've, you know, I basically haven't been going out to restaurants or even, even driving past restaurants that much. So yesterday I decided to just do some kind of, you know, just, just reach out to, to people on, on social media and, you know, and ask them what they were seeing to see if it, if it jibes with what I'm seeing, which is that, yes, people are going out and, um, you know, they're, they're doing a little bit of everything. I talked to, to a chef owner and, and John's Creek, Soraya, who owns Hen um, Mother Cookhouse. And I was, you know, just like, you know, are, are people, are people getting takeout only? Are they dining in a lot? Are they sitting on the patio? And her response was, um, see if I can find it. It was really, really funny. She's a funny person. She said, I was writing a message, but it's so long that I can't even express myself. We have guests all over the place, some people freaking out because people aren't wearing masks, some people dining inside, living their best life, some people ordering to go and still popping their tr trunk. It's an effing nightmare. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm restaurants through in the course of this, you know, now we're entering almost It'll be year three of restaurants operating during pandemic when we hit mid-March. And um, we've seen them try to meet people wherever those customers might be, right? Whether yeah. it's going to be safe on-premises dining. First, you know, they had to figure out outdoor. Then it's like, okay, indoor. Um, then they, you know, and then, well, clearly they have learned the art of takeout most of them and um some people still i'm um, like you say the curbside thing even so you know so there's folks who are doing that and so to to want to be able to meet everyone's um needs and desires is an impossible job yeah yeah and i think I think it's, it's a, obviously it's a personal decision. If you, if you, you know, want to eat in a restaurant or get takeout or however you, you know, want, want to do it. Um, I spoke to a person who's not in the industry. It's just a person who eats out a lot with his wife. And he said that they were probably doing 70% takeout, 30% dine in. We fill out our comfort level for dining in on a case by case basis and weight mm -hmm. the risk with how important it is to us. For example, last weekend they were feeling winter blues. We needed the cozy, we needed the cozy atmosphere of Brookstore 
Saturday before the weather rolled in. And that was worth the risk to find an isolated table in there. So yeah. Yeah. I hope that's helpful. <laughs> you right. know, and, it, and it's what we were talking about. You, you go to a restaurant and you may be kind of on the fence. So I think there's some, you know, tips that could maybe help you. Um, a lot of, first of all, a lot of places close, you know, they just have to close for whatever reason. They don't have staff or they run out of food. So I think it's always a good idea to call before you go and to scope it out maybe if you're thinking about eating inside and if it doesn't make you feel like you're going to be comfortable, you can always get takeout. Yeah. Um, yep. And you might, you might see that table over in the corner and there might not be, may not be anybody in the room. So it may be fine. That's up to you. Uh, but above all else, be kind to people. I did hear some, you know, um, just people are just, are, are so frustrated. Uh, uh, you know, diners are, are, are just, on both sides, people just seem to not have patience. It seems to kind of be bringing out the worst in people. So be kind to your, your servers. They're, they're going through a lot. Well, and I, to go to your point on, you know, the patient's kindness kind of thing. When I spoke with Chris Hall, who is a chef owner with the group that owns Local 3, Muss and Turners and MTH Pizza, um, I just, I, I feel for these guys and it was, it's just, um, it's, it's telling, it's time, it's a sign of the times, but he said, you know, we ultimately, we don't want to disappoint you. We're doing the best we can. I mean, and I think that um, those of us who are supporting the industry, whether we're doing, you know, takeout or dining on premises, um, there, that, you know, it's just about really customer understanding of the restaurants are doing the best they can. And we've got to be really patient in that, whether it's going to be in a longer wait for getting our food, whether it's going to be less, um, you know, menu items available or even mm-hmm. getting snippy about, you know, my tea isn't sweet enough or something. Right. Yeah, that's right. You stole right. my example. Okay. All right. <laughs> gotcha, Wendell. But, um, you know, while, you can, I, while I have you. You can have the sweet tea, like I, I'll drink Okay, I'm not even a sweet tea drinker. Um, but since we, 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 we are doing Atlanta orders in again, and this time actually our protocol is to order um, multiple times so that these are a little bit more um, um, have a more touch more element of review i know that you and i are both going to um, are cognizant of the state of things right now that we're not looking to slam anybody but we're certainly going to be able to, to talk about our experience and um and you know some of the food that kind of thing um do you want to talk about a, uh, any of the i've just done one it ran <clears throat> last friday it's a okay. new place mm-hmm. in glenwood park called pho q that's pho is in the vietnamese noodle soup and q as in uh, Southern or Texas style barbecue. Both these guys used to work at, at Fox brothers. And, um, I, I will say, I want to be clear on this. It's not authentic Vietnamese food, but, um, it is kind of a fusion of both and the, the place, even though I didn't get to dine in, it, it feels like a kind of like a sports bar. And, um, very casual and laid back. Yeah, I saw your the, photo. I saw your photo of the interior. The, the price point is great. I mean, especially considering food costs now and also how, mm-hmm. as I might have grumbled about before, how expensive some barbecue restaurants can be. They're, um, 
entrees are in the ten to fourteen dollar range, and they do they do uh, Vietnamese classics, you know, sort of draped or stuffed with uh, barbecue. So they do a pho and they do ban uh, mi's, and you can choose what kind of meat you want. And they do a um, funny; it's like a loaded fries. They call them banh mi fries because they top them with their healthy fries. They're topped with herbs and <laughs> lettuce Ooh, and jalapenos yum. and all that. So that's that's fun. The the dish that I that I liked and I when I posted something on Instagram, like all these people came out, weighed in and said, "Yeah, they're the best ever." Are those um, brisket stuffed egg rolls? They're fried egg rolls, and it, it sounds like okay, whatever. But they're really, you know, it's one of those things where you take a bite and you're like, oh my God, this is so good. So yeah, don't forget the egg rolls. <laughs> All right, I'm, I'm taking You can notes. take them home with you and they're still good. Nice. Well, I do want to share um, my learnings from my takeout experience at Zeke's Kitchen and Bar, which I mentioned that's over in, in Smyrna. And it's a husband and wife owner's. Um, his name is Zeke and her name is Ashley. The last name is John Lewis. It's hyphenated. He is a first generation Haitian American. So he was raised in Queens. Um, and he's actually one of, he's one of nine siblings. He's the youngest. The family began moving here into the late 1990s. And now he and five of his siblings are here as well as his retired parents are down here. So the catch is that you, you mentioned the word authentic, and I'm going to shy away from that. His is not traditional Haitian, but it's Haitian fusion. So he's having some, you know, some fun there taking, say, familiar fl Haitian flavors and kind of um, injecting those in familiar dishes, whether it's like a sandwich or pasta um, bowls, tacos. So that's what they have going on there. It's pretty fun. And I want to mention a few of the, the things. Some of the, these two are like, um, kind of based on family recipes, but obviously he's kind of, um, manipulated them or given them his own personal spin, um, for what would work in his concept. But for example, like his mom's recipe for meatballs, she would normally, um, serve that with Didi Cole, which is the, um, red rice and beans. And instead he's taking that same, um, the, he's transforming the meatballs into a patty for what they call the Creole burger. But what I want to point out, one of my favorites that they have, it's called the Rasta pasta. And he, uh. he nailed it. He it's the thing that makes it is this creamy jerk Alfredo. So, uh -huh. oh, that is, it's totally coating, um, the, um, Sicilian um, spiral pasta. It's got the sh sauteed shrimp, mushrooms, peppers, but it's just a, the beautiful warm heat of this creamy Alfredo. Um, it totally brings the dish together. Highly recommend that one. And then the, I, I, I mentioned that Creole burger, but what I really liked was the Haitian, which is essentially a play on a, you know, a riff on a Cuban sandwich. And he just, it's like this, I call it in my story, um, a hot press handheld homage to the motherland. So he's got like the, um, the Epis, which is that green, um, it's like an herbaceous green seasoning base. That's a typical Haitian staple. It's got what else on it? Oh, the pickles, which are, are the, yeah, the pickles, which is the pickled um, vegetable relish. He's got two mm -hmm. kinds of meats on there, the marinated, um, Epis marinated, pork and brisket, and then Monterey Jack. And he's using 
um, bread from La Segunda in Florida. It's just, oh, oh, and he also has, there's an um, an Epi's uh, aioli on it, which he joked about like Haitians don't even know what aioli is. It's really, it's a fun sandwich and it's just terrific. And it's served with the yuca uh, frites, which are terrific. So yeah, that's a right. that's a fun place. So you'll find things like that. Oh, and I should give a shout out. They have this really nice rum cake that, and I, this is new to me, take down this name. Have you heard of a pastry chef named um, Manuchka Harard? And her no, business so. is called no. Sweet, Sweet Treats by Ma. M-A, Sweet Treats by Ma. Anyway, she's here local. She's got her business. And so they've been trying, they also want to support other, um, you know, local Haitian businesses. So they purchase her rum cake, but then um, they give it sort of like a, you know, a fancied up job and they sear it on the, um, the flat top. And it gives us almost like this mm, French toast type quality. And then they top it with some ice cream and pineapple chutney and fresh mint. It is good. So I was glad to know about another. And there's another name for you, too. We got to check her out. Um, So, yeah. So, Zeke's, I'll be looking forward to eating in person there. I think that's been, of course, the catch with um, some of this takeout. You know that the food is it's not the same when we're, um, you know, we're going to have to wait whether we're getting it delivered or whether we're bringing it home and time, some food can hold and some food doesn't hold as well. So I'll be looking forward to eating at Zeke's um, to have some of this stuff when it's, you know, hot off the flat top. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is kind of a no brainer, but most people want to want to get takeout in their neighborhood so they can, you know, be home in 10 minutes and eat while it's hot. We, it's true. our job to cover places outside our neighborhood. So sometimes, <laughs> That's you, true. but you know, and, I, and I've probably right. mentioned this before. I've had people say, you got to try, you got to bite into that sandwich here. You can't drive back to your right. house. It's going to, you That's know, it. you're going to get stuck in rush hour traffic. <laughs> Eat it in your car. I know. So it's yep. not, it's not fair to judge food that you've, you know, maybe that you've been right. driving with for 30 minutes across town. All right. Well, Wendell, I think that we can end this, you know, on a happy note. I'm looking forward to experiencing more new restaurants, even despite that it's going to be takeout. There's a lot that have opened that we need to cover. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I can't wait. There's always, always new places to write about in this town. There are. I mean, we just came out with a huge list of a bunch of anticipated restaurants coming for 2022. So, um, yeah, there, there's definitely restaurants opening. Okay, great. Well, maybe I'll bump into you somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. Okay, Wendell, enjoy your takeout. We'll look forward to dining in person as soon as it's safe. And you stay safe and healthy. Okay, you too, Lagaya. Thank you. Let's take a short break and look at more events in and around Atlanta. The Victorian-era sensibilities of Gilbert and Sullivan's The Pirates of Penzance don't always translate well for modern audiences. It's been a little difficult to make prohibited intimacy, even the brief holding of hands, supercharged. That is, until the coronavirus pandemic hit and made the no-touching morality in the opera a commonplace concern. So, in the Atlanta Opera's new production, which begins January 22nd at the Cobb Energy Center, COVID-19, not Victorian prudence, makes every onstage connection seem like a dangerous act. And because of those pandemic concerns, the Atlanta Opera is even offering ticket holders the option of viewing via live stream from home. 
Read more about this new production and John Ross's preview online now at accessatlanta.com and coming in Sunday's Living and Arts section. The Obama portraits are now on view at the High Museum of Art. The exhibition will continue through March 20th, when it moves to Houston as part of a five-city tour. Read more about the art and the artists on accessatlanta.com and check out last week's podcast, which featured a talk with the National Portrait Gallery's Dorothy Moss. Ocean breeze. Tropical beach. An air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Let's continue our conversation with Lagaya Figueres and Hannah Raskin. I'm joined now by Hannah Raskin. Hannah is the editor and publisher of the Food Section, a Substack newsletter that she launched last summer. Prior to that, Hannah worked nearly eight years at the Post and Courier in Charleston as its food editor and chief dining critic. The food section covers food and drink history, politics, business, and culture across the American South. For Hannah's most recent food section publication, she wrote an investigative piece about the safety of Georgia restaurant workers during the pandemic, and she has agreed to discuss her findings with me today. Hannah, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So before we get started discussing your story, can you give folks a quick overview of the food section and what you do? Absolutely. So I was I received a Substack local grant for one year, uh, essentially to bring the kind of food journalism food and food coverage that I practiced here in South Carolina at the paper, as you mentioned, and cover the broader region. Um, as we know, there are a lot of food journalism deserts out there, um, and this is intended to compensate for them by running independent, rigorous um original food journalism. So whether that be restaurant reviews, investigative reports, as you mentioned, um, in-depth features, subscribers receive one of each, uh, not one of each, but each week they receive one of these pieces. It's awesome. It's been really rich um, stories. Um, I think that you've really um, gone some places that, like you mentioned, um, are perhaps, you know, underserved um, and, and especially not in, in larger cities who wouldn't have um, someone there to, to do what you can do. So it's, yeah. it's been really terrific. So congratulations um, on everything that you've done so far. Cool. And, well, thanks for reading. Yes. And in particular, so let's talk about this recent story, which um, I think we should even point out. It's so important that um, you actually chose to, well, you're is a subscription base. This was actually, um, you made this free for anyone who wants to read it. Yeah, absolutely. I think when we're talking about the public welfare and the safety of our hospitality workers, um, I don't see any reason to keep that information behind a paywall. Right. So, so the overview is you share that most Southern states don't know how many food and beverage workers have died from COVID, but you were able to find a, a lot of data regarding workers in Georgia. And those numbers are, 
are pretty stark here. So can you can you start, just, let's go back a few steps and give us some background here on how and why you pursued this study or this story. Absolutely. So I actually started reporting this story while I was still at the Post and Courier here in Charleston, trying to obtain these very numbers from this, from South Carolina. Um, largely because there has been a persistent rumor that the reason they can't fill the jobs at restaurants is because everybody died. And there was just no facts to back that up. We know people died. I knew anecdotally people died. I had reported on deaths, but I had no idea how many there were. My suspicion is that it wasn't equal to the number of openings in Freedom Beverage right now. Um, just because the number of openings is greater than the number of people under 65 who died, but we didn't know. So I asked South Carolina for this information. It turned out they didn't have it. They don't do any sort of tracking uh, by occupation. So when I launched the food section in September and took on 11 states as opposed to just one, I realized it was a great opportunity to tap into what might be better public record systems. Okay. So, I asked it, so I asked every state for that same information. What I looked, was looking for specifically was the number of people in the food and beverage or hospitality industry who had died of COVID-related causes between March 1st, 2020 and September 1st, 2021. That's okay. what I had asked for. And most states said exactly what South Carolina did. Um, as a longtime reporter in South Carolina, you tend to be very cynical about this state and its data. So I thought, boy, surely it's, it's a different picture uh, in other states. Although I knew that this had not been reported really anywhere. And so mm -hmm. I thought, well, maybe people just hadn't asked. So I asked, and the reason is they don't record it. So I want to be clear, it's not just restaurants, it's occupational data entirely. I mean, right. most states can't tell you how many garbage men, how many, you know, warehouse workers, they just don't know. Sure. And I think we should point out, you know, there's a lot of publications, the AJC included, who is keeping COVID dashboards in terms of, you know, say, um, cases or number of deaths and stuff and trying to keep that up. But obviously there, you know, this is a uh, total across the state. Again, not by occupation. No, not by occupation. I mean, there's really, I don't think any way mm -hmm. any newspaper could do this mm -hmm. on a day-to-day -day mm -hmm. basis. The yeah. CDC does record, um, you know, that we know age, we know race, we know state, we just don't know jobs. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so that so that's the so you go you're asking for um, records and in one case you were even denied. Right? <laughs> yeah, well, this is something I've learned since launching this newsletter. Is there are several states in the South that have a rule on the books that unless you are a citizen, they do not have to respond to your public records request. In this case, there were a few, you know, a few public records officials who I think took pity on me and knew these records didn't exist, so just told me so. Uh -huh. um, but other states did as they are by law allowed to do and say, you know, we're not even going to entertain this because you do not live in, you know, Tennessee. Right. Right. Okay. So Georgia, Georgia did comply. Georgia said yes. So yep. um, yeah. So tell us what, how, what you waited through and, and then we can get into what you found. <laughs> sure. So um, I, <laughs> I did not want to make my readers wade through an investigation as to why Georgia keeps different information on its death certificates, but it turns out Georgia is a treasure trove of information when it comes to occupational um, 
occupational information. So uh, they provided me with exactly what I requested, which was um, uh, COVID deaths during that 18 months time period broke down by industry. So um, it, the list includes, you know, 27 major sectors in Georgia, ranging from manufacturing, which lost um, oh, nearly 3,000 people to COVID-related uh, causes, um, down to management, which has 21 deaths linked with it. So that's the overall picture. And food services, as the state of Georgia terms, it falls kind of in the middle of those industries. Um, mm -hmm. In the period that I investigated, there were 711 deaths from COVID-related causes. Right, right. And let I just to point out too, in terms of like assumptions or unknowns, you did point out that we don't necessarily the job title like. Um, would represent the person's usual occupation, but that doesn't necessarily indicate that the person was either working in that capacity just before he or she died, or that it meant that the person contracted COVID while at their place of employment, right? That's absolutely right. Like I, there's a lot here that we don't know, and there's still mm -hmm. analysis that needs to be done. So exactly as you say, it could have been that they had let not held the job for two years prior to the mm -hmm. pandemic, but still thought of herself as a chef, say she would be listed as a chef. So that doesn't tell us much about safety in restaurants. So right. that, I'm really glad you brought up that caveat. Um, but the important thing, of course, is we've lost more than 700 people. So I think it's, yeah. it's worth talking about. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Two, two of the data points that are out there, I was just kind of so surprised by them. One of them, okay, so service food service managers accounted for 14% of these 711 deaths um, yep. between that time frame, And then cook that defined as cook 24% of deaths, but then you, you make a note to be like, okay, so, so cook could be seen as the deadliest of the food service jobs. But when you look at the total number of cooks working in Georgia, which is what 61,000, Yep. versus food service managers, which is around hovering just under 8,500, you see that actually, and you, I mean, to me, if I'm blown away by this, if you were a food service manager in Georgia during these 18 months, you were four times more likely to die of COVID than if you were a cook. Yeah, to me, that was one of the most interesting things, because as I spoke to people in the months leading up to this, uh, this publication, I was kind of, you know, waiting for the data to come back. I would say mm -hmm. like, well, you know, what have you heard about, you know, who has died? And people would say, and they had really no reason to say it, but people's uh -huh. um, preconception and misconception was that it was dishwashers dying. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh, and I think that's because if you've worked in a restaurant and you know a dishwasher, they often have, you think of someone with comorbidities, you think of someone who mm -hmm. might be older than the rest of the staff, someone who often takes a smoke break, you know? And so I think for anybody in the industry, it's like, oh, I, I, it was probably dishwashers. Um, and if you think about someone who's marginalized and, and you know, very low wage, dishwasher fits the bill. Um, but as it turns out, there were 12 dishwashers uh, listed. Now, again, we already talked about job titles move around, but 12 dishwashers as opposed to 173 line cooks. Right. So, but as you say, it's the, the manager thing that I found fascinating. I think partly because as there's been, um, you know, a, a groundswell of support for people in low wage jobs for the, you know, people who have workers who have suffered abuses and so on. I think sometimes these general managers get lumped in with the man as like part of the problem. 
the reality is in many cases, a restaurant GM is making less than the servers he or she manages, right? Because they're not tipped. Um, the, you know, the salary is good, but it's not great. Um, you know, it's, it varies by state, but we're talking about like, you know, average Mm -hmm. 50 to $60,000 a year. And right right now they're at tremendous risk because since they are salaried, they're working so many hours, which means they have no escape from these pandemic conditions. Right. Well, and on top of it, would you say too, that they're interfacing with so many people, right? I mean, you're going to be potentially seeing customers, you're going to be seeing your servers, your hostess, let's say if you have um, folks at the back of the house. So, right. I mean, it also exposes, it puts you at further exposure, just it, it would be magnified. That's absolutely right. And not only is it part of the job, oftentimes, and there's certainly no way to prove this, but if you have found yourself in a GM position, you're probably a people person to begin with. I mean, you're the kind mm-hmm. of the face of the restaurant in many cases, or you're the person mm-hmm. doing all the hiring. Um, so in talking to folks in this position, they like being with people. Whereas a dishwasher, as we know, is back there in the pit, often with headphones on, doesn't see a mm-hmm. person, his or her entire shift. Right. Wow. You know, I, I think it's interesting. And I, just to segue for some recent um, uh, for a story that I reported on in December, I spoke with a woman who had a supervisor role at a national um, um, sandwich chain. Mm-hmm. And she left that position because she was actually offered uh, you know, an increase in salary and more responsibility. So this would have been a promotion. She quit because she was like, no, I can't, I can't do this because one, she felt that she was going to be having to scramble the stress of getting folks to work. It was hard. And so, and she'd constantly be having to pick up, you know, the, um, fill in um, wherever the holes might be. And so she, if we're, if we're seeing that a manager is an opening these days, um, you know, and this woman was a particular case and like, I don't need, I don't need that anymore. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, as we talk about these risk factors, you know, maybe food service managers are a little bit older, but they also do have a tremendous amount of stress, which is not anything you want um, when you're fighting off a deadly disease, right? Yeah. So. Did, out of curiosity, when it comes, when we talk about age, and let's say if they are slightly older, the average, did you fit, did you find it sort of an average age for um, these managers who did um, um, die as a, as a result of COVID? Oh, that's a great question. I did not request age initially, so I don't have the age. There wasn't, wasn't matched with age. All I have is job title. Okay. Yep. And then t- tell me, so you've done, you, you've, you've taken this um, um, uh, data from Georgia and really um, given us a great picture of what's going on in this state's um, industry as related to, um, you know, COVID risk, but, um, what do you have further plans with other States or what's your next step here? Yeah, well, I'm still waiting to hear back from Florida and North Carolina. So obviously any more information I receive, I'll share that with, um, readers of the food section. Um, and so I I don't know, but I think the important thing is just to keep at it. I mean, as we know, the pandemic isn't over yet. So I think Mm -hmm. I will just, continue to, to keep seeing what I can turn up. Right. And for you, what do you hope is the takeaway for, from folks who, who read this story? 
I hope that people realize just how much suffering there has been within the industry. Um, we, you know, we've talked a lot about the restaurants, which didn't make it, but we certainly want to give all honor to the people who didn't make it. So mm -hmm. I, I, I think that's, that's really the most important thing here is there were people who were just doing their jobs and we don't know, again, we don't know what, where they contracted the virus, but we know they're no longer with us. So for me, that's, that's the most important takeaway. Right. Well, you know, and, and as a follow-up, when we think about, um, you know, health and safety in the industry, which is just, I mean, these, these folks have been deemed essential workers. And while they are not in healthcare or hospitals, um, they are, they are definitely, you know, front facing frontline um, folks. And recently we did a story here, I reported on um, about you know, healthcare in the industry and how, you know, it's just absolutely um, lacking. And recently we've had a few restaurants who have tacked on um, a healthcare insurance fee for, well, it's basically an added fee to the bill, um, like either between four and 5% um, to be able to fund healthcare for their employees as seeing that as the only remedy because the safety of their employees is paramount to them. And um, so, I, I mean, I see these as a little bit connected in the way of we are, how are we taking care of, if we value restaurants so much, you know, um, the work that you're doing and, and watching, I think it just helps people, all of us who are also consumers of, at restaurants to understand um, what's going on there and also why operators are making certain decisions that they are. Absolutely. And the idea I think is, as we continue to support the revival of restaurants, it's not just about spending your money. Um, and as you say, you know, um, paying for the healthcare surcharges when they're added to the bill, but also doing all you can to protect the workers. So if the restaurant asks you to wear a mask, wear a mask. Even if the restaurant doesn't ask you to wear a mask on your way to your table, wear a mask. I think just, you know, get vaccinated, get boosted. Let's, let's keep these restaurants and the people who work in them safe and healthy. Right. Well, Hannah, thank you so much for joining me. This was really informative. And um, if people want to subscribe to the food section, can you tell them where they can go? Absolutely. You go to the food section.substack.com. That's it. Perfect. And you can also find me on social media. And if you do, it's easy to get there from there. Terrific. Okay. So once again, this is Hannah Raskin. She's the editor and publisher of the food section. And Hannah, I, this is the first time that you've been on an Access Atlanta podcast, but I'd love to have you back again. We can chat more about um, the work that you've been doing, not just um, focusing on Georgia or your neck of the wood in Charleston, but throughout the South. Yeah, this is super fun. Thank you so much for having me on, Ligaya. You bet. Okay. Take care. Bye. The HAC brings you the best of what's happening in and around Atlanta on accessatlanta.com, along with deeper looks at trends in arts and entertainment. Here's a taste of what you'll find there. The mother is an archetype so ingrained in our psyches we think we know her through and through. She's nurturing, giving, compassionate, and selfless. The typical Hollywood mother suppresses her own needs and desires for the good of her children. In reality, the long-suffering mother is more likely an overburdened service worker trying to navigate COVID-19, child-rearing, and wage-earning in an America where support for our most cherished icon is, paradoxically, scant. In 2021 and the early days of 2022, films like Lamb, Parallel Mothers, Petite Maman, The Power of the Dog, 
Spencer and the lost daughter feature a bevy of strange, unsettling, and complex mothers who challenge maternal business as usual. Read Felicia Feaster's fascinating examination of these mothers on accessatlanta.com and in Thursday's Living section. When Cameron Munson was small, his grandmother used to sing a nursery rhyme. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. The ghoulish little song about the American woman tried and acquitted of the murders of her father and stepmother in 1892 would prove to be Munson's initial entry point into the grim world of true crime. The fruits of this fandom have also borne the inaugural True Crime Film Fest, organized by Munson and coming to the historic Earl and Rachel Smith Strand Theater in Marietta. The festival, the first of its kind in the United States, kicks off at noon on Saturday. Read more about this new fest on accessatlanta.com and a story from our partners at Arts ATL. For more things to do in and around Atlanta, go to accessatlanta.com and ajc.com. The podcast is edited by Tyson Horn. The theme music is by Bo Emerson and Billy Guin. And I'm your host, the AJC's arts and entertainment editor, Shane Harrison. Join us next week for more Access Atlanta. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.